0: Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam.
1: Hi, I'm Anna.
0: And today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 14 of The Clone Wars, A Friend in Need.
1: Allegedly the last standalone episode of The Clone Wars. I
0: saw that too, and I actually went ahead on our schedule and did some changes because I was mistaken, and this is the last standalone. Mm -hmm. So from here on out, it's all triple headers or double doubles. Yeah, we're, we're getting our cholesterol on. So we start off and we are on Mandalore. We are in the city of Sundari. We're in Duchess Satine's throne room, or I guess conference room with Guernica behind her, and there's separatists talking with the Republic, and they're trying to have a peace conference.
1: Yeah. Remember when Padme and Ahsoka had an unsanctioned meeting with the separatists Mm -hmm. back in the funding the war arc? Well, this is a sanctioned peace negotiations meeting that is happening on neutral ground, which is Mandalore.
0: So they're having a very tough conversation where the separatists ask for their legitimacy and to be recognized as a legitimate government, when all of a sudden... Who bursts in the door but Lux Bonteri, who has grown up a little bit.
1: Mina Bonteri's son and a war orphan.
0: And he walks to the podium and says, Dooku murdered my mother. And kind of just throws a wrench in the gears of everything. So the Separatists are like, hey, this is completely out of order. Guards take him away. So some commando droids take him away.
1: They march him onto a ship. They toss him in front of a hologram of Dooku who orders the droids to kill him.
0: Right then, he also touches something on his wrist, which turns a light from red to green. Meanwhile, on the Republic side of the table, we have Padme and Ahsoka. And Ahsoka's like, gotta go to the bathroom, K bye. And she...
1: She goes after her man.
0: She bursts through the door and right as Dooku orders... Lux's assassination, she kills the droids, and they escape. They're chased by droids to the landing craft and have sent R2 ahead to start the engines and cause a huge diplomatic incident. So as they're flying away, Anakin phones in and is like, hey, so how are things? How's it going? Sounds
1: like you scuppered the peace negotiations Mm double-handedly.
0: And he's like, okay, fine, we'll we'll offer Lux uh, amnesty. As soon as he gets off the phone, Ahsoka turns around and, ba Uh, Lux has a gun pulled on her. And she takes it from him, like, in one second. second.'s like, why are you doing this? You're not a fighter. You're a nerd. He's like, I
1: have a plan. And she's like, okay, shooting me? Not a good plan.
0: Yeah. So his plan is to follow a third way. He's like, the Separatists want to kill me. I can't be part of the Republic. I'm just going to kill Dooku. And I know some people on the planet of Karlak who will help me. And she's like, oh, this is a terrible idea. And he says, I'm afraid you'd say that and tasers her because he is actually reasonably clever. Archie comes by and is like, I heard there were meatbag problems. And Lux is like, she's just taking a nap. So Ahsoka wakes up. They've landed on the beautiful world of Carlach. It is a snow world with continual cherry blossoms going on. Absolutely gorgeous. She looks out the front window, and sees A, that her lightsabers are gone, and B, that Lux is just standing out in front of the ship.
1: So she storms out into the snow, and mm-hmm. Lux promptly meets up with a group of bona fide Mandalorian warriors. And oh my God, Bo Katan is there.
0: <laughs> it's the Death Watch. This is the first appearance of Bo Katan, and they are all about taking this information because they want to kill Dooku as well.
1: So much happens in 15 seconds. We mm-hmm. meet bo We see Death Watch. Ahsoka has to pretend to be Lux's fiance. They're
0: like, who are you? And she's like, I'm... His betrothed. And
1: then bo slaps her on the ass. Mm-hmm. It, it is a lot to handle. And
0: R2 shows up and he's just like got on his little tiny arms two lightsabers that he found in a locker somewhere. And Ahsoka's like, no, no, no. And he's like, okay. And he hides them inside himself and joins them. And then he gets shoved on top of the speeder bike and he's so forlorn and they go to the Death Watch camp. This Death Watch camp is a crazy tent village surrounded by snow, and they immediately separate out your woman. And Ahsoka is sent with the rest of the women who aren't named bo and they talk about the plan. The plan is the thing that was on Lux's wrist is actually a hollow trace device, and so As long as you have that device, you know where Dooku sent the hologram from. So
1: his grand plan was to get himself thrown in front of the hologram of Dooku and then use the holo tracer to track the origins of the call. And now he just needs to give the coordinates to Death Watch so Mm -hmm. they can dispose of Count Dooku.
0: Now, importantly, the leader of Death Watch pre-Visla.
1: We're just getting a callback to everyone this yeah, episode.
0: Apparently, he's had a falling out with Dooku and has a huge scar across his face and is very grouchy. Also, he's shaved his head and looks extremely terrifying now. Oh boy! So, Ahsoka and Lux are talking right before they get separated, and Ahsoka's like, "What are you doing? What is the plan?" and Lux sees Previzsla coming in behind her, grabs her and pulls her in for some hot tongue action.
1: It is the second on-screen kiss of the Clone Wars. It, it is, is. fantastic. Send help. I'm dying. This was <laughs> the best. The, the kiss is basically the only fun thing because then we start getting some clues that Death Watch is very bad news spares. Yes,
0: because Ahsoka is thrown in with the local uh, princess, daughter of the chieftain, granddaughter of the chieftain, and she's like, it's terrible, Death Watch showed up they took all of our stuff they're holding us hostage and at dinner later as all of these hostages are serving food the leader the chieftain of the village comes in and says i want you to go we were welcoming but you've overstayed your welcome
1: and give my granddaughter back mm-hmm.
0: and Prevesla says of course no problem we'll be gone at sunrise tomorrow cut
1: to sunrise tomorrow
0: well there's one more important thing which is what r2's been up to r2 was sent in to repair the droids which were being used for repetitive combat training for the mandalorians
1: oh that's a nice way of saying that they were getting their kicks and giggles in just destroying these droids Mm -hmm. for fun
0: so ahsoka and lux and all the mandalorians go to the village with the hostages at sunrise and are ready to turn them in. They hand over Trila at sunrise. is like, of course I'm a man of my word. And then he pulls out the dark saber, stabs Trila through the back. And he says, kill them all. And Mandalorians appear and their jetpacks out of everywhere and start lighting the village on fire. It's super horrible. Ahsoka decides that this is... Enough. She grabs a stick, spears a Mandalorian with it, grabs another stick, kills two more Mandalorians before like four Mandalorians grapple hook her down. Oh boy, she is being held, and now Lux is on the, you know, in trouble because Previsla is like, You brought a Jedi to us. We hate the Jedi as much as we hate Dooku. And Lux says, I didn't realize that you'd be horrible murderers. And Previsla says, Well, you came to us for a murder. <laughs>
1: Like the, <laughs> me think the lady doth protest yeah, too yeah. much. Like, <laughs> y-
0: yeah, you're you're kind of naive.
1: Fortunately, back at camp, R two has been assembling an mm-hmm. entire droid army,
0: and also he shows up at the door right as Ahsoka's about to be assass or executed. And he With the dark
1: saber, no and, less. Yeah,
0: he does his R two thing of making a lot of noise, throwing out a smoke screen, and flinging out all of his arms, and also giving Ahsoka her lightsabers. She does a quadruple axle and a quadruple decapitation Phenomenal. in one move, and then gets into a fight with Previsla and the dark saber.
1: Holy shimole. It's Ahsoka and Previsla dueling lightsaber against dark saber. Ahsoka ends it all by slashing Pre vizlas jetpack. And he says, not bad, Jedi. And she's like, oh, I didn't miss. And his entire jetpack explodes and they shoot off into the darkness.
0: So then is the chase scene. Lux, R2, and Ahsoka are running off on a speeder bike and there's three Mandalorians on jetpacks following them. Ahsoka deflects a blaster bolt onto one of them. Another one comes up lands and tries to tackle Ahsoka. Archie gives him the old oil to the face trick and gets him. But the last one is Bo-Katan. And after a very crazy fight, she gets shoved underneath the car, cuts the underside of the car with her knife, but they make it to the ship just in time and take off.
1: But Lux never meant to stay. So as soon as they get into space on their ship, he ducks into the escape pod and mm-hmm. Ahsoka holds up her palm to the glass and he holds up his palm to the glass. And he says, don't worry, we'll meet again. I promise.
0: There's a lot more going on in that conversation because he says, I can't go with you, Ahsoka. You you know that. And she says, "But but we can try, try to change things together. We make a pretty good team, don't we? Don't worry, we'll meet again, I promise. There's so much subtext going on mm, in that conversation. Definitely
1: wanna talk about it. But that's the episode.
0: Yeah, cut to cut to credits. This is a sweet one, this is a lot of fun.
1: This was a phenomenal episode. This one was really good. What do you wanna talk about?
0: Uh, so the first thing I noticed was the ships. It's been a while since we saw Ahsoka, but there's some really cool ship art. They're flying mm. on a GX-1 hauler, which is one of the starting ships in Outer Rim. Uh, it's a board game that we really yeah, like. and you should get it. It's it's fantastic. The gauntlet ship that the Mandalorians have and then the speeders, it's just kind of a classic Star Wars episode. The aesthetics all throughout are totally perfect. On Karlak, um, on Sundari, but on Carlac with the snow and the cherry blossoms and then the wooden village. And it would be a scene out of just about, you know, any samurai flick, except that there's Mandalorians on jetpacks around and the cars aren't horses, they're they're speeder bikes and speeders. It's a very cool aesthetic, and the dichotomy of aesthetic is just Stunning.
1: Yeah. I read in some of the show notes that this episode was actually supposed to be set on another desert planet, mm-hmm. but Dave Filoni didn't want anything connected to Tatooine in this episode. So he was like, okay, can you give me Japan in the middle of the Cherry Blossom Festival, but make it winter mm-hmm. and then have Death Watch flying around on their jetpacks and there's fire and there's driving snow and there's darkness and light. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful episode.
0: The driving snow is a very uh, strong motif throughout this.
1: Yeah. I like that a lot of our standalone Clone Wars episodes have snow in the background. I mean, it brings me back to Trespass, which is probably one of the strongest standalone episodes I think in the Clone Wars so far.
0: That is interesting, particularly because, fast forward a bit, the Battle of Hoth, the scenes on Hoth and Empire Strikes Back are extremely strong as far as character building and storytelling, despite being a very small part of the arc. I imagine that it's tough to do a snow scene, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's obviously easier when you're animating things.
1: I want to talk about Bo-Katan and the Darksaber.
0: Okay, so... This is the first canonical appearance of Bocatan. Yes. But Anna, you've seen The Mandalorian.
1: I have seen The Mandalorian, so I am familiar with Bo-Katan. So we don't have to do spoilers. Mm -hmm. But I have a couple things I want to talk about as far as Bo-Katan just appearing as this mysterious lieutenant in the Death Watch.
0: So we don't see her face because her model wasn't completed yet. But she is voiced by Katie Sackhoff, who voices her in all of her appearances as well as does her live action.
1: There's a really cool note. Dave Filoni sketched her helmet design on an airplane napkin yeah. when he was just flying through the middle of the air after a recording session. And he was inspired by the face of a barn owl, mm-hmm. which you can totally see in her design when you're looking for it. Yeah. But I love the implication of that. It's fabulous. Barn owls are these like watchful, silent predators of the night. Mm-hmm. And I think that implication is so cool. And it tells you a lot about Bokatan without even knowing anything about her, except that she's, you know, a relatively moderate to high-ranking person in Death Watch.
0: So she runs a subgroup within Deathwatch known as the Night Owls.
1: Ooh. And what I
0: love about that, during World War II, there were on the Eastern Front between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, there was a Soviet... Air Division flown by women known as the Night Witches.
1: What? Yeah.
0: And they flew these old biplanes up until the 1970s. It was like, or the 1990s. It was the most commonly built plane ever. The Soviets built millions of these things. And they are these crazy old biplanes they used for crop testing. And they would fly them over the trench lines, over Nazi encampments. They'd turn off their engines because a biplane flies really, really well, because they're used to flying with like a 65 horsepower engine. So they glide quite quite well. And then they'd drop their bombs and the the planes were pretty quiet already. The Nazis called them sewing machines, but they were the night witches. And the point of it was not to cause casualties, it was to make sure that the Nazis couldn't sleep.
1: Wow. But
0: that was a huge part of the Eastern Front of World War II. And that's where I draw the inspiration for the night owls, as well as being a predatory force. But Boak is by far the most dangerous opponent other than Previsla, but Previsla really relies heavily on his Darksaber.
1: Yeah, so I actually went back to my notes on the first Mandalore arc mm-hmm. when we covered that episode arc to see what exactly we find out about the Darksaber. And I think all we find out about in season three is that it was stolen from the Jedi Temple by ancient Mandalorians. Mm-hmm. And what Pre says about it is... Since then, many Jedi have died upon its blade, and he looks at Obi-Wan in the first Mandalore arc, and he says, prepare yourself to join them. Mm. That's all we find out about it. So it is still shrouded in mystery, Mm -hmm. and we know it's a deadly force, but since we have Ahsoka going up against it with her lightsaber, I don't think we see just how decimating it is as a weapon.
0: Yeah, well, it is functionally just a, a lightsaber. You know, it's it's a lightsaber that is commonly wielded by non-force users, which is the interesting part. There's later on, uh, particularly during Rebels, a lot of talk about that exact thing of a non-force wielder wielding a lightsaber and how the lightsaber is actually heavy because you know it's it's made out of light, which has no mass, but it's or plasma, which has negligible mass, but it is. Like, the weight of the thing is different than you would expect.
1: Yeah, we see Pre Vizsla wielding it pretty fluidly and and with a lot of expertise. And I think that makes him a very formidable opponent for Ahsoka.
0: Definitely, definitely. And fortunately, R2 showed up with enough droids who unfortunately all dramatically perished, but...
1: I would like to point out the title of this episode is A Friend in Need, Mm -hmm. and both of our main protagonists, Ahsoka and R2... Both engage in helping out friends in need in this episode.
0: When R2 is first introduced to these droids, they're saying, Please reassemble us. Please reassemble us. It's so creepy. Mm They're circling
1: around him, and it's this dark tent, and he's been shoved in there. And there are these like half assembled, destroyed droids. And then by the time we cut back, he has literally put every single one of them back together. And this little pit droid jumps up in front of him and mm-hmm. is so excited to be back to life.
0: What's funny, a lot of those droids have like mismatched parts now. And it reminds me of that scene in episode two when C-3PO gets his head replaced oh on the gosh, battle droid back yeah. and forth. <laughs> and R2 like, no, this is incorrect. I know how to put droids together. But he he made do with what he had.
1: That is delightful. He made his
0: little army of droids.
1: So can we talk about Ahsoka? Yeah. Or do you have more stuff you want to
0: talk about? No, no. This is, uh, I think that Ahsoka and Ahsoka plus Lox is the actual crux of the episode.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I still have some stuff that I want to talk about with Death Watch and the Mandalorians, but I do really want to talk about how great Ahsoka is.
0: She is fantastic in this episode.
1: Ahsoka has gotten exactly three arcs in season four so far, and all of them have hinged on her saving an entire population, mm-hmm. which she does every single time. So with her dying breath, Trila, the granddaughter of the chieftain of the Ming-Po people in this episode, mm-hmm. she begs Ahsoka to save her people and Ahsoka leaps into action. Mm-hmm. And it is inspiring. She grabs a quarter stave and a spear. She spears one Mandalorian through the chest. She's like somersaulting to her feet. She's like, let's go. I'm ready. Yeah. And it's this phenomenal callback to the Zygerian arc that it takes three Mandalorians with whips, basically with whip mm-hmm. cords to take her down just like Anakin when he was in the arena on Zygeria.
0: And also shows how effective the Mandalorians have set themselves up to be because a Mandalorian in armor is supposed to be a match for a Jedi, right? They have jetpacks so they can super jump. They have shields, they have lightsaber-proof armor, unless you hit it in the joints.
1: They have ranged weapons like flamethrowers mm-hmm. to make sure that they can keep a distance from the Jedi's lightsabers mm-hmm. but still do damage.
0: And, and then they have the, uh, the grappling hooks, which will wrap around people. And, and once you're tied up, then your muscles don't do nearly as much, even if you are able to use the Force. I mean, we see that in episode six, but we also see it every single time Mandalorians and Jedi get into a tussle.
1: I know. And I find it just deeply moving and deeply inspiring that there are several times in this episode when Ahsoka doesn't have a weapon. So on Mandalore, she doesn't have her lightsabers because it's neutral ground, right? Mm -hmm. And they have to, the Jedi have to give up their lightsabers before They can set foot on the planet. And she still manages to take down the commando droids that are going after Lux.
0: Oh, yeah. She just boots them all to the head. She just
1: kicks them in the head and goes on about her day. Mm -hmm. And then on Karlak, when she sees the Death Watch going after the villagers... She doesn't have lightsaber. She doesn't have anything she makes do with whatever weapons she can find around her. Yeah. She takes down three full-grown Mandalorian warriors with like pieces of wood and the force. Yeah. She's so cool. We were joking in the car the other day about how great Ahsoka is in season four mm-hmm. and just how deeply everyone underestimates her.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. And how she has this incredible like she is the actual pure Jedi here. Looking back to the previous Mandalore arc, where there's so much romantic tension between Duchess Satine and Obi Wan, oh, and then the my whole, OTP, the whole original arc of Padme and Anakin. And Ahsoka's like, look at all these men I didn't bang. <laughs> okay, well,
1: okay, hang on, hang on. So we were we were laughing in the car about the Mon Cala arc mm-hmm. when, you know, Ahsoka has the same job that Anakin and Obi-Wan did, which is to protect the fledgling monarch from their political enemies During and their the war. civil wars. Yeah. And we're like, haha ha, Ahsoka protected Prince Lee Char without falling in love with him. And here she goes dating a senator's son.
0: I mean, kind of, sort of, it was very interesting. The last lines, because that's really, there's not a whole lot of dialogue. It's a very, it's a short episode and it's long on action and short on dialogue. And so all of the subtext of the relationship between them is put into those last words because the rest of it is just in their actions. And, it's like they're breaking up from a relationship, but they never had a relationship. They kissed once. They lived and died this entire emotional relationship during this arc. It's fascinating.
1: I think it's I think you're right. And also I disagree with you.
0: Okay. This happens all the time. Yes.
1: <laughs> so when we meet Ahsoka and Lux for the first time together, it's mm-hmm. in Heroes on Both Sides, which is yep. in season three. And there is absolutely something going on emotionally between the two of them. There are a lot of long glances that they share, and there's a lot of subtext in their conversations. And I think Ahsoka and Lux are at that age when you don't have to say a lot and you don't have to do a lot to feel like you are in a relationship. Yeah. Kind of like seventh grade dating. Yeah. Like you hold hands sometimes and you go to the movies once. Like, oh, we're dating. And then like – six weeks go by and you break up over the phone. And that was a full relationship yeah. for your age, right? And yeah. that was just a totally appropriate and normal. Yeah, I
0: can totally relate to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. me too, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if you're being sarcastic or no, not. No, I, I, Okay, I, good. Yeah. And I think there is enough in the conversation and enough in the subtext that we are supposed to infer that this is an important relationship to the two of them.
0: Yeah, there's also massive character growth for Lux from heroes on both sides where he's wearing a stupid cravat upper class tall ridiculous not quite a tuxedo outfit.
1: He does look like a little porcelain teacup.
0: But in this episode he looks like James Dean wearing a black <laughs> turtleneck and a black beanie with a cool logo a on cool it. A cool
1: beanie. He looks like
0: he is ready to go infiltrate a U-boat and punch Nazis.
1: But the fun thing is that Lux is still the normie of the relationship. (laughs) Like every time Ahsoka (laughs) says run, he has to run because she is so much faster than him.
0: She is. And she's like, R2 and Lux go like get the car running. I will solve this massive fight.
1: Oh my God, I love the escape scene. I went back and watched it again because Mm -hmm. Lux is driving, R2's in the passenger seat, and Ahsoka is crouched on the back of the car like an attack dog. Yeah, she's the muscle of the relationship. She
0: absolutely is.
1: They are so great.
0: And she's uh, she's she's just fantastic in this arc. All of her fighting, all of her skills, and her attitude is so. She doesn't let her emotions get in the way of things so much. Like she knows the importance of geopolitically she sees that Lux is almost certainly going to get killed for speaking out against Count Dooku. So she goes and interrupts that process because she thinks that he has useful information, and also an emotional attachment to him. And then she just keeps trying to keep him alive to bring to the Republic.
1: Yeah. I think we see Ahsoka firmly planted in herself this episode. She knows exactly what she values and she has her convictions and She tries to find solutions that minimize violence, but she's also not afraid to be the muscle when she needs to be.
0: Yeah. She does kill a fair number of Mandalorians.
1: Only when they were going to kill her first.
0: This is true. They did all shoot first or ready to kill her, but she does get at least like 10 Mandalorian kills. So...
1: It's interesting that you bring up the geopolitical implications of this episode, because that is one area that I thought this episode disappointed me. Oh, yeah? Well, the peace talks were the thinnest of reasons to get the gang together again. Yeah. So... When we finished the funding the war arc with basically Senate murders, mm-hmm. the peace negotiations were off. Yeah. You know, there had been a real potential to bring the separatists and the Republic together to extend olive branches on both sides and get them working for the end of the war. But when we open this episode, it's basically just a pretext to set the stage for Ahsoka and Lux to be together again. Mm -hmm. It had to take place on Mandalore so Lux could be there because Mm -hmm. that's the last place we saw him. They had to have Padme and Ahsoka together so we would remember the last time they were together, which was the funding the war arc. And the peace talks are uh, just immediately trashed. They're scuppered. Mm -hmm. And we never hear about them again.
0: Well, I mean, obviously the war continues for another three seasons of Clone Wars and the first 20 minutes of episode three. So there's a fair bit more that needs to occur.
1: Yeah, it it just feels flimsy to me. Yeah. I think there would have been another way to set up the episode without kind of dangling this carrot again of like, oh, and what if we can end the Clone Wars right now? Except, oh, wait, there's a convenient interlude.
0: So the real problem there is that Lux and Ahsoka are not big movers and shakers. And so if we're going to have a Lux and Ahsoka episode, like you said, we need to have them meet. But then the implications of them meeting will set some things in motion, but it's not going to change drastically the course of the war in this exact moment. Anakin getting captured or something totally would. Padme getting captured totally has. Like that was the malevolence arc, right? Mm. When Padme gets captured. But Ahsoka is... Ahsoka, she doesn't, she's off doing her own thing. So another bit is that seeing this this starts two balls rolling, and we've got little snowballs at the top of the mountain right now, but they will become avalanches. One of them is what's Death Watch up to? What's Bocatan up to? What's Previsal up to?
1: Yeah.
0: Because we thought that they were kind of sort of separatists, but now they're not. They're anti-separatists, they're their own faction of terrorist Mandalorians. They have Very few friends, a ton of enemies, and there's a lot fewer of them now, but they really dislike Ahsoka.
1: And their military command structure has really fallen apart, right? When we first meet Death Watch in the Mandalore plot Mm -hmm. in, I think that's season three? Yeah. They are a regimented militaristic unit, right? Mm -hmm. Their armor is shiny, they march in formation, they follow orders. And by the time we open on their camp in Karlak, they look like a biker gang.
0: I mean, they are a biker gang. They're riding around on speeder bikes. Yeah, they're
1: rowdy. They're ruffians. They're kidnapping peaceful servants, peaceful when, villagers to be their servants. When the
0: chieftain comes in to ask them to leave, as he as Previsla says, yes, of course, as he's leaving, everyone's laughing.
1: Yeah, you know what? Now that I think about it, when we were going over the first Mandalore arc, we talked a lot about the Mandalore ancient warrior culture in Mm -hmm. terms of other warrior cultures. Mm -hmm. And the feeling of that tent when they're having their feast and Ahsoka has to serve drinks and they laugh the chieftain out, it feels like a Viking hall.
0: It does.
1: Just like lit by fire with these tables and benches filled with male warriors and their course and their anti-peace.
0: Another thing that adds to that, we only see it for a moment because Pre mostly has his helmet off. But when he has his helmet on, it has jagged horns on it, Mm. which will matter. Okay. Yeah. The other ball that gets set rolling is what is this third path that Lux is going to follow? He is not pro-Republic because he thinks the Republic is corrupt and he is, in fact, correct. But he also hates Dooku because Dooku killed his mom. So
1: Lux is a war orphan. We knew when we finished the Funding the War arc that his story was being left open. Mm -hmm. His father was killed by ARC
0: troopers. Or Anakin. Or Anakin.
1: His mom was killed by the Separatists, but really it was Dooku. It's interesting that he chose to go after vengeance for his mom and not his dad and that he chose Dooku as his target?
0: I think two things there. One of them is that when his dad died, it was probably, you know, a combat zone death. And that has a little bit more fairness. And also his emotions would have been regulated by his mom. Yeah. And then his mom was advocating for peace. And at the moment she was because if he knows that his mom was killed by Dooku, he knows that Dooku scuppered the peace process. Mm. Which also like Padme and Ahsoka and everyone knows, but there's no way to like prove that. And there's no way to know that Dooku and Palpatine are working together. So he's he he doesn't consider that a fair kill. It's unfair that his mother, a non-combatant, was killed to sh- quiet to to continue the war.
1: Okay. I yeah, I guess I I guess I can see that. My line of thinking with Lux is that if people were perfect, if they didn't have their judgment clouded, if they didn't have grief doing weird things to their brains, mm-hmm. Lux would have figured out that the correct course was to try to end the war entirely. Yeah, Because now he's seen two of the most important people in his life, victims of both sides of the war. Yeah. Right? But instead, he scuppered the peace talks himself by barging in and accusing Dooku. And he had a grand plan, but he also kind of shattered the last effort of his mother, which was to try to end the war.
0: I'm sure that his reasoning would be Dooku would have scuppered it one way or the other.
1: I think, yeah, I think so. To me, in the moment, it felt like a real disservice to Mina's memory, but I can see that he thought he had a bigger plan.
0: Yes, because if one way or the other, taking Dooku out will end the war.
1: If you can.
0: And that's why when he shows up and points a gun at Ahsoka, he's like, I'm going to take out Dooku. Ahsoka's like, Give me that, you entire shit <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, you nerd. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because she's she's fought with Dooku. She's like, I can't take on Dooku and I just took your gun. Like, what are you expecting to do?
1: Oh Little buttered noodle doesn't know anything. I know.
0: And she's been trained by Anakin and Anakin's fought Dooku. She knows that Anakin and Obi-Wan fought Dooku together. And, and still
1: went, couldn't do it. And
0: and one in three quarters people walked away from that.
1: Oh no. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. And she's like, these
0: are two of the best lightsaber duelists alive. Like two of the and Ahsoka
1: best. is mm-hmm. you know a formidable opponent in and of herself,
0: and she was trained by these two. And she's like, Dooku has everyone who's whooped my butt has had their butt whooped by Dooku, <laughs> and I whooped your butt. So in the in the pyramid of butt whooping, you're at the very bottom.
1: Uh, in this pond, you are the very tiniest of fish.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, my gosh! I wonder how that. Uh, that actually interacts with the interplay, the attraction of their relationship, and what roles they both expect the other to fulfill.
1: Hmm. Say more.
0: So she definitely would consider herself the less naive and the more uh, the one who would defend both of them.
1: Yeah, she's the muscle.
0: Yeah, and she's the alpha. <laughs> and he considers himself the the man with the plan.
1: Yeah, he thinks he's the alpha.
0: Well, I mean, that's a completely meaningless term, but they both think they're in charge. Okay. Yeah.
1: They both think they're wearing the pants.
0: Yeah. And it turns out that like that relationship is not something I think that's going to work for either of them. Because they do have a strong attraction to each other, but they don't have... And they have chemistry, but I don't know if they could make it work because they're both going to be like, how are we going to prosecute this war that we've taken on ourselves. That's kind of what the line at the end says. We can we can try to end this war together.
1: I think the important part of that conversation for me was actually how unsure Ahsoka yeah. was mm-hmm. about what would get him to stay. Mm-hmm. So she runs up to the glass of the escape pod and he's there and she's scrambling for something to say to him to make him stay. Yeah but she doesn't really know him well enough to know what the exact right trigger is to get him to change his mind. Yeah. So she kind of looks down into the side and she's like, well, we could try, I guess, to change things together, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't really know what it is that they would need to change.
0: And what would need to change would be themselves
1: because Hmm. they both
0: have a strong view of their place in the world. And the amount that they're willing to compromise does not result in their goals overlapping.
1: Actually, now that I think about it, when we met Lux for the first time in Heroes on Both Sides, we talked about how he was thrown into the narrative to be the foil to Ahsoka, to Mm -hmm. challenge her viewpoint. Yeah to let her meet a separatist and see that he was different from her but not all that different from her Mm -hmm. and that separatists were people too and to be kind of totally outside of her realm of understanding. Yeah. So it makes sense that he's still an unknown quantity to her.
0: And he absolutely seems that way the entire time. And I think that's represented as well in his clothes because he's dressed like a secret agent.
1: He looks great. He looks like that really handsome boy in your math class, but like after school <laughs> on a mission. Yeah. In an alley.
0: Yeah. Black turtleneck, black beanie. He's off to like go He's got plant shoulder pauldrons. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He looks great.
0: And Ahsoka is wearing a cool parka most of the time, which is also super cute. Oh
1: my God, I'm so glad you brought up her amazing fur coat because I really just wish she would never take it off. (laughs) It is fantastic. There are two little pom-poms on the tips where her montrals go. (laughs) She looks great. It's my favorite Clone Wars outfit for a long time. (laughs) Petition for Ahsoka to never take off the fur coat.
0: There's another aesthetic note and this comes up a few times. Ahsoka's eyes are mm. extremely well illustrated in this. They're they're animated well. Her
1: expressions are great. Mm-hmm.
0: But when she goes from like, because as the Mandalorians are showing up, she's like, "These are the Death Watch. These are terrorists." And they're like, "Who are you?" And she's like, "I'm his betrothed." <laughs> and her eyes sparkle, and it's not like an anime thing. It's like. Perfectly animated that her entire affect has changed. Her
1: earnestness shines through. And she
0: cuts her eyes to locks with this instant of play along. Like I've actually done this before. It'll be fine.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, she's so great in this episode.
0: Yeah, she's she's a real rock star.
1: Yeah, I think she shows her flexibility, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is such a beautiful calling to Jedi teachings that you adapt to fit the situation, mm-hmm. and you adapt to become the solution that's needed. And maybe that is like prequel era, you know, the Jedi of now. Mm-hmm. But that's what I see in Ahsoka.
0: The other important bit of this is R2.
1: Oh my gosh. Please let's talk about R2. So
0: this is a classic Star Wars tale in the sense of there is an adventurer, there is an adventure, there is a person in distress, and there's R2-D2 solving all of the other problems one way or the other, or C-3PO sometimes. but Just
1: doing the most. There's a
0: droid in the background who everyone ignores, except for the fact that he's carrying lightsabers. He's like got the repair tools. He has oil. He's got a flamethrower. He's got a smoke canister. He's like, I'm ready to go.
1: Okay, we have to talk about how R2 took down so many Mandalorians in this episode. Yeah. On the speeder, as Lux and Ahsoka and R2 are trying to you know, escape back to their Mm -hmm. ship, he takes down one Mandalorian from a distance and then squirts oil in the visor of another one. And Ahsoka's like, that's two that I have to thank you for.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ahsoka is, she would be in real trouble without R2. And I think she would have been able to make it happen, but she recognizes how important R2 is because he's always there, like in the exact right moment.
1: Just that moment when he barges into Pre Vizsla's tent Mm -hmm. as Ahsoka is kneeling. He is about to execute her with the Darksaber. And R2 whips out every can opener and pizza cutter in his chest compartment. (laughs) He's
0: like, you have no idea how many kills I have.
1: (laughs) And he like whirls around and he's kicking up the snow and he is making it hard to see. Mm -hmm. And he just... Goes up to Ahsoka and does exactly what she needs in that moment. He cuts the handcuffs off of her and he rolls her lightsabers into her hands. And Mm -hmm. she's like, okay, let's
0: go. That move. She immediately jumps up and there's four Mandalorians surrounding her. And she cuts all their heads off and you see their heads roll off. Do you really? You do. (gasps) It is explicit.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: And I'm thinking like this is the most explicit human kill we've seen.
1: Yeah, because we saw Riff Tampson's beheaded shark head at the end of the Mon Cala arc. And we thought that was graphic.
0: So the uh, the nature of the show has really taken a turn towards the darker. Because imag- look back to the previous kisses and near kisses in The Clone Wars.
1: Okay, so there's a near kiss between Anakin and Padme.
0: During the Malevolence arc.
1: Oh yeah.
0: And then there's a kiss between Padme and Rush Clovis. <laughs> that one is gross. And then there's this. And we've moved from obviously these people are already married to that is a woman and not her husband.
1: Mm. Which
0: is scandalous. And but she's being a spy, so it's cool. And then we move to these teenagers who have this like strong emotional bond that we already know that the because On the backdrop of Mandalore, which is where Obi-Wan and Satine have their conflict, Mm. we already know that this is like where Jedi will compromise on that ideal.
1: Hmm. Mandalore specifically?
0: It seems like, but also that's the whole point of the episode in my mind is compromise. It starts off with compromise between the Republic and the Separatists for a peace deal, And then the whole thing is a conflict between Ahsoka and Lux to determine where they can compromise to move ahead together. Where
1: they will bend and where they will hold firm. And yeah, then they have to break up at the end because neither of them is ready or willing to compromise on their worldview. Yeah. Ooh. I think that is the crux of the episode. I think you're right. But you also now have me thinking that there's something in the water on Mandalore that makes all of these romantic subplots happen. <laughs> and I'm so here for it.
0: Well, Mandalore is a scoured planet, right? It's a post-apocalyptic wasteland with these big arcology cities left.
1: Nothing like a post-apocalyptic vista to bring people together, Sam. <laughs> My final note is kind of future casting about Death Watch and the Mandalorian culture. Mm -hmm. And it's really just a tiny thing. When the Clone Wars came out, we've talked about how Dave Filoni was painting the Mandalorians on a blank canvas. Yeah. The only Mandalorian we'd ever met was Jango. And we only knew he was a Mandalorian because someone is like, oh, yes, that Mandalorian over there, Jango Fett.
0: Well, we also knew Boba Fett. And Boba Fett. Yeah.
1: And now that we're in season four, we've seen two kinds of Mandalorians. We've seen the Mandalorian pacifist people who are actually on Mandalore Mm -hmm. under Satine, who, by the way, looks fabulous as usual in Mm -hmm. this episode. We love to see it. (laughs) And we've also seen Death Watch, which is a militaristic, semi-terroristic splinter group who was on Concordia and is now kind of in exile.
0: Yeah, or running around raiding.
1: So I haven't seen all of the Clone Wars, and Sam, you have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When the Mandalorian show opened and we see Din Djarin, Mando, mm-hmm. is it assumed that he's Death Watch? No. And that's all you can say? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I was kind of trying to probe and see if there were spoilers in front of us.
0: If you knew, you would consider either answer a spoiler. So
1: okay, okay.
0: Uh, That actually brings to mind one more thing that I want to bring up: that Pre-Vizsla was voiced by Jon Favreau.
1: He was. Both the times that we've seen previs, like he has been voiced by John Favreau. uh,
0: John Favreau really leans into that voice and it is fantastic. Do you
1: think so? I didn't like it. That's the point. He had a weird intonation. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a subtitle person. So I read the subtitles Mm -hmm. as the voice actors are reading their script. And his intonation and his syntax was so weird, and the way he read his lines was bizarre.
0: Yeah, he's an alien. He's from another planet. He's spoken to the same group of like sixty people. He's an evil dude. He's got the weird evil dude voice.
1: The only That's thing great. I remember about Pre Vizsla from previous interludes, I guess, was when he's offering Satina a cocktail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like b- from one dignitary to another. Mm-hmm. Let's have a drink. And I thought he did really, really well. But in this episode, I was like, I don't know, John Favreau. That's well, because
0: he's moved from being a smarmy traitor in a position of power to someone who's counter to the actual government of Mandalore. He's moved from being one of the generals from Virginia who fought in the Mexican-American War to a Confederate general, to a rebel.
1: Okay. Maybe this makes sense to, to history buffs. What I think is maybe more relevant is that he has moved from Putting on this very suave appearance as the leader of a moon. Mm -hmm. And now he's been hanging out with his gang of ruffians for an undetermined amount of time. And he's had no one to talk to except for the villagers that he's threatening and later, and his biker gang.
0: So, importantly, this episode was supposed to be the first of a four parter. Uh, which is the next sort of separatist politics plot, which we'll get to eventually.
1: Okay. This brought up one final thing that I really wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about, which was the villagers. They're great. Ming Po. Mm -hmm. There have been times when I really love when the Clone Wars introduces us to people who are peaceful and live very simple lives, like the Luremen from Mm -hmm. the Anakin injured arc. Love them. The villagers from Bounty Hunters,
0: yeah, little, love them. Turtle people. Yeah. They're
1: great. The Tugruda from Kiros, the peaceful artisan colony that we just met in the Zigerian arc. Mm-hmm. But the Ming Po I thought had a kind of problematic appearance in this episode.
0: In the sense of how they defended themselves?
1: In the what? sense that they just existed to be murdered and used as the catalyst for the next plot point.
0: So there's two things going on there. One of them is that uh, they are the peasants in this samurai tale. This is a samurai story about a samurai who follows love and comes across a group of ronin who are threatening a village. Okay. Show that, your work. <laughs> that's like what this is, right? And the, the hapless peasant who is R2 saves them. Ahsoka is the samurai and the death watch of the ronin because they are warriors who have... Uh, let go of all ties.
1: Oh, okay. they're, they're untied warriors. Okay, 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 okay. It's
0: a, it's a samurai story, straight up, and that's why it takes place in fantasy Japan. The other one is actually a conversation you and I had that we didn't quite get to the end of, and it relates to hospitality and how different cultures have different rules for hospitality because you're from the American Southeast and I'm from the American Southwest. We have very different rules on... Very different social structures on what happens like when you invite someone over to your house and how in a culture like the Ming Po have where they live on a snow planet, you're going to be welcoming to people kind of no matter what for a period of time because they need to recover their strength to go back out into the snow.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I, I like this idea that hospitality is woven into their culture and mm-hmm. that it's a very ingrained behavior for them. We just don't see it. We don't have any canonical proof. We don't have any text. We don't have any dialogue. All we get is from Trila saying, we're very simple people. We don't know how to fight back. They took us as servants, and what are we supposed to do? And the naive chieftain who lets himself be laughed out of the tent and never thinks to consider that he's inviting annihilation of his village Mm And they just kind of run off into the snow and are never seen from again. We don't get any kind of neat bow tied around their story. And for all we know, Death Watch is going to continue to enslave them for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah. And that's an unfortunate part of that. Although hopefully Ahsoka is like, hey, Duchess Satine, I know where Death Watch is.
1: I hope so. I have no idea what happens next. This is uncharted territory for me. I just I like when people in the Clone Wars, especially non-Force users, get a little bit more agency and a little bit more respect in their storyline. And I didn't see that here.
0: I think part of that is that if there's one criticism I have of this episode, it's that there's a lot going on in not a lot of time. Yes. And that means that some things are going to have to fall by the wayside in terms of pacing. That is true. Like how we were introduced to Bo-Katan without being introduced to bo We just know that she's the cool one. She's the um, the one who cleans up pre-visless messes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: To be continued. Absolutely. This one started a lot of chains of events, but there's definitely more to come. So, out of the... Two and a half protagonists (laughs) of this episode. (laughs) Which one is going on Baywatch? Presumably well, it would be the first time for Lux Monteri, but it's not Lux. I'm not picking Lux. All right. Are you saying it's time for Baywatch? It's time for for Baywatch. for Baywatch.
1: I see strong arguments for other characters, but my heart says Ahsoka, and I'm naming Ahsoka this week's bay.
0: I think that's fair. This is an Ahsoka-centric episode.
1: We have enumerated all of Ahsoka's fantastic qualities, and I don't think I have to go into them again. I just see Ahsoka growing into herself more and more every time we see her. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a beautiful coming-of-age episode for her. I love to see her getting a romantic subplot. I think that's great. I think it would be weird to have a teenage warrior not have some kind of brush with romance. Mm. Unless there is another better reason for it, but there's that not. That explains
0: my high school, yeah.
1: <laughs> teenage warrior, Sam. No romance. <laughs> she's strong. She's flexible. She's principled. She has gone from this skinny 13-year-old Padawan in the Clone Wars movie who gets herself into messes and can't really get herself out of them Mm -hmm. to a ferocious, formidable warrior who can come in and wreck your entire
0: plan. Absolutely. And who isn't afraid of anything. You know, she's sitting there about to be executed by the Darksaber and she's like, I'm sure things are gonna work out. She's utterly fearless.
1: Yeah. The the beautiful moment is that when she is kneeling in front of pre she just closes her eyes. Mm-hmm. And it it feels like she's just like getting good with the force. Yeah. She's like, All right, whichever way this goes, I'm gonna do a little quick meditation, I'm gonna get cool with the force, and I'm ready for whatever happens. Mm-hmm. So she has this beautiful blend of being a strong warrior. And then we also get to see a little bit of a gentler side to her too, which is falling in love. Yeah. I love to see someone containing multitudes, especially a Jedi. Mm -hmm. Ugh, so great. It's Ahsoka. She deserves it. Yeah. Who is your bae?
0: I gotta go with Ahsoka.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Strong, strong arguments for R2. I thought
1: one of us was going to choose R2.
0: No, R2's fun, but, you know.
1: Ultimately, the droid army has dubious uh, utility.
0: It did. It was a, um, you know, in D&D parlance, it was like a one-round distraction or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone gets advantage on this role because the tech droid did a distraction. A
1: really great diversion. Yeah,
0: but that's, it's a diversion. It felt like it could have been important. But it was not, which is fine.
1: I think it might've been more important if this wasn't a one shot.
0: Or if the droids had survived.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Pour one out for our droid friends. Jeez.
0: I I thought that was so weird that they wanted to be reassembled when they must've known that they just would've been shot to pieces again.
1: Yeah, but if you had to go to your death missing all of your limbs versus standing heroically before your defeat, which one would you choose?
0: Eh, Standing heroically. Fair enough. And the droids, of course, were like, thank you. We will do what you ask. And R2's like, hey, can you like let's go, let's go punch them all. Let's just unite. Droid rights unite.
1: Who is R2 in the samurai story? Is he like the cool general?
0: No, no. R2 is the he's the fool. He is the audience stand in. The
1: fool. He's the fool.
0: He is he is the hapless peasant. No, no. he is the uh, he is the the Sancho. He's the one who is he's the sane one. That's three PO. They're both they're both in in. The, it's always that you have the chorus of people who are the audience stand-in, and that is R two D two because he's like I am not going to get involved in these crazy politics. I would my parents are perfectly safe. I do not like. I'm not going to put my life on the line for revenge. And the only thing I could do was help my fellows. Like if I was forced into action, I'd be like, oh, hey, let's get an army together. And then with numbers, we'll force him out because that is what Yeah, his that's role why R2
1: is. R2 is a grassroots activist general.
0: He's a grassroots activist, but in a culture such as the Star Wars one, which is fundamentally samurais and gunslingers, right? That is the great man heroic age. And R2 is a space communist trash can so he <laughs> he is all about numbers that's his <laughs> de- deal He's not a hero even in the uh, C3PO and R2 arc. he's not a hero despite the fact that he guillotined the king.
1: If he's not a hero then he is he sure is heroic
0: that is the difference
1: I'm sorry I'm gonna go name a band space Communist trash cans and nobody can stop me) <laughs>
0: All right, so next week we start on the Racco-Hardin arc, which is a four-parter. Mm. So we're going to do the first two episodes, which are season four, episode 15, season four, episode 16. And that's going to be uh, a fun one. That's That's got a real rogues gallery of characters. I'm excited. It's a classic. This one, classic Ahsoka story. The next one is a different different kind of classic
1: interesting okay i'm excited Mm -hmm. as always thank you for listening if you want more skywalker feel free to follow us on social media we are on twitter instagram and facebook and if you want bonus content you can become one of our patrons just search for growing up skywalker on patreon.com
0: thank you so much for all of your support and we'll see you next tuesday
1: And uh, send this episode to that friend that always comes through for you when you're really in a bind.
0: Mm -hmm. And also send it to your friend who's always in a bind. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.